0: All right, folks. I want to thank you all for coming to the Cato Institute. My name is Michael Cannon. I'm the director of health policy studies here, and uh, we've assembled an illustrious a couple of panels uh, today to talk about uh, and, and really celebrate the anniversary the anniversary of the release of Cato of the Cato Institute's first uh, health policy book. That book is Patient Power by John Goodman and Gerald Musgrave. Uh, it was released by the Cato Institute in 1992. One of the authors is here with us uh, today. John Goodman will be on the next panel. Uh, to help us kick things off, though, we've got uh, Senator Bill Cassidy here uh, to offer some of his thoughts about about patient power, about the state of health policy, uh, in uh, about how patient power has influenced health policy in the United States and the state of uh, health policy and health reform right now. Uh, Dr. Cassidy, I'm going to call you Dr. because it sounds more illustrious than Senator. <laughs> uh, Dr. Cassidy uh, is uh, served first in the Louisiana State Senate, uh, in the House of Representatives, and it's been in the U.S. Senate since 19. I'm sorry, 2014. Uh, but prior to that, he was uh, uh, he was a uh, practicing physician uh, in Louisiana, including in Baton Rouge, where he grew up. And uh, he now serves on the uh, Finance Committee, the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, and the Veterans Affairs Committee, Three committees, the th- three Senate committees that have the most to do with health policy. So, uh, Dr. Cassidy, patient power was a really revolutionary book because uh, health policy debates in the United States uh, did, prior to patient power really didn't incorporate the idea that the individual patient should be the one controlling his or her medical dollars, making his or her own his or her own health insurance decisions. Uh, what can you tell us about you know the impact of this book and uh, and uh, how it's influenced your thinking and uh, its impact on the broader health policy debate?
1: So I think uh, so. My, my, my background: I worked in a public hospital for the uninsured, and in that, ultimately, the legislature controlled everything. And you couldn't help but notice when the legislature controls everything, the decisions are made not by the patient, but rather by the legislature or the person whom they designate. The example I always use, I shouldn't laugh, but just, just in retrospect, the hospital in which we worked had a broken door, and the broken door stayed broken for a year and a half to two years. And you would say, no. When I say broken, I don't mean like a glass pane. I mean the door was off the hinges. And you would just walk in, and then there would be a second door. Um, and, uh, and a friend of mine who's from Uganda, a physician who came to practice with me, goes, this looks, like a, this looks like a hospital in Uganda. <laughs> well, ooh, it's probably not a good thing. Um, and that's because there was no money. The patients had no place else to go. And so why spend the money on that when the patients had no place else to go? The patient didn't have the power because she could not go someplace else. I contrasted that with where my wife practiced, uh, a hospital for women. Women make 95% of the decisions in healthcare. And everything lined up knowing those women could choose to go someplace else. So uh, the, 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 the wall paint was pink and mauve. There was a place to pull up. Somebody would then park your car for you and there would be a docent as you walked in the door to make sure you went to the right place with a coffee shop selling you a $4 cup of coffee and a flower shop in case you forgot flowers for the just-delivered mother. And so I go through that to contrast of a place that the patient had no power and the patient that did. If you, th- if you will, I think that the whole kind of... Um, uh, uh, high-deductible health plan, but patient consumer-driven health care has been a result of a book like this. We're now at a point, though, do we go to Medicare for All, which is kind of central planning with supercomputers, but political control ultimately, or do we go to market forces where the patient has the power, uh, the payor has more of the power if it's a small business owner, etc.? And, and that's the choice where we are now. So it is a tide that has come in, but whether it continues to rise... I think is the point where we are now, Michael. So um, I don't know if I'm able to use the slides
0: from sitting here, but I've got a couple of slides uh, that I was uh, g- gonna use to walk through uh, sort of a brief history of, uh, back one if we could, a brief brief history of health policy in, uh, in the United States since the late 1980s. So if we begin in 1989, one slide back from this, then what, or maybe it's, no, no, I'm sorry, one slide after this, that's correct. Then uh, where we where, where I'll begin is in 1989. Uh, the preeminent conservative think tank in the United States is the Heritage Foundation, it's, thank you, is the Heritage Foundation, and they endorse an idea that we've come to know as the individual mandate, okay? This is the idea that the government should, that one of the essential pieces of making healthcare accessible to all is to require everybody to purchase health insurance. All right. In 1992, the Cato Institute releases patient power. Uh, patient power uh, stands for a different idea, the idea that instead of the government telling you that you should be buying health insurance and what kind of health insurance to buy, the government should be trusting you with your own health care dollars uh, and uh, letting you make your own health care decisions, and that is the way to bring down um, uh, health care uh, uh, prices and make health, Access to care, uh, improve access to care. Uh, when the Clinton health plan uh, is introduced in 1993, there are basically two different camps in the uh, in the uh, free market movement. And one of those camps responds to Clinton Care with the Heritage plan, and that actually became the dominant Republican proposal. the uh, uh, The other part of the free market movement said, No, no we need to move in the direction of uh, really, the uh, preeminent idea that, that uh, patient power introduced onto the national stage, which is what we call then medical savings accounts, or what we now call health savings accounts, and uh, and that split uh, and and the, the Clinton health plan you know didn't pass. No, neither did the GOP alternative to that, which was based on the Heritage plan. But t- two thousand three comes along. Uh, Republican Congress, Republican president give us Medicare Part D, which is a vast expansion of the government's role in healthcare, but attached to that is sort of a sweetener for the, that other part of the, uh, of the free market movement is health savings accounts. Finally, the idea that patient power brought to the national stage has been enacted into law. Uh, fast forward another seven years, and we have six or seven years, we have a debate over the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare where Democrats have now taken up the heritage plan. Uh, and, uh, and they passed that on the national level Republicans run against that for seven years until Republicans take control of both chambers of Congress and the presidency uh, after promising to repeal and replace Obamacare for seven years. And Republicans fail to do so. They cannot coalesce around uh, even a repeal plan, much less a replacement plan. Uh, and now, uh, and so now, uh, despite, uh, you know, the Cato Institute, we're out there uh, publishing uh, books beyond patient power. Well, that was the, the first one we got out of the gate. So there's no shortage of ideas out there but now we've got uh, President Trump. He went from saying he's going to repeal Obamacare. It's just around the corner. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, he, he, he responded to a lawsuit that is working its way through the federal courts by saying uh, – by a, uh, endorsing that lawsuit, saying that it should overturn all of the ACA. And he's going to have a replacement plan that's going to make Republicans the party of health care. It seems like Republicans in Congress responded with, no, we're not going to become the party of health care. It like that was the last thing that they wanted to do. Uh, So, uh, and now we have, uh, as the Trump administration is advancing ideas to reduce Medicare spending on say Part B drugs, we have Republicans, conservatives pushing back with really ridiculous arguments that 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 would somehow import foreign price controls. But more important, these are proposals that would reduce Medicare spending and Republicans are pushing back against them, saying, no, we have to keep Medicare spending So my okay. question for you, there is a question in all of this. What's going on
1: with the Republican Party in healthcare? So a couple of things. The um, administration plan on international reference pricing was actually based upon something that I published on my website about six or eight months ago called Making Healthcare Affordable Again. And I'd actually ask Azar about that in his confirmation hearing, the idea that we would base our price as some multiple of a market basket of those from other rich countries. At the time, he was somewhat negative, but then subsequently, they put out a rule a little bit different than we proposed, in fact, but in concept the same. And so I do think that within the Republican Party, um, um, they're, they're, at least in my shop, we're all about health care. And I don't like the idea of being the party of healthcare because I think that it really should be the, the, that implies that government should control this. That's wrong, in my mind. I think that the patient should have the power. Totally agree with your title. But I do think that we've got free market ideas out there. We're working on surprise medical billing, for example, which is a market failure. We're working on price transparency. Uh, We're working on a variety of issues as regards how to lower drug costs by reintroducing market forces where currently there are no market forces. Uh, And I could go down the list, but I do think that there is a very active uh, intellectual ferment on what we can do to restore market forces to something crying out for the need of such restoration. But there was a promise that
0: Republicans were making for seven years uh, to repeal and replace. Uh, The president is still out there making that promise. He said that after 2020, uh, after the next election, if we uh, if, if we take the house back if, if he we being speaking of his party the Republican party if Republicans take the house back hold on to the Senate hold on to the presidency then we'll uh, advance a plan
1: there so I got three things to say to that if yes. I may First, I agree with the president that as long as the Demo- as long as Democratic Party controls the House, the only thing they will agree to, to consider is Medicare for all, which tells us that both parties think that Obamacare has failed. They, the Democrats wish to double down on government control, and Republicans wish to go in a the patient has the power mode. I say Republicans want the patient to have the power. Democrats want power over the patient. I prefer our version. Secondly, I've had two different plans out there, that would attempt to address and repeal and replace Obamacare. Uh, The second one was under the restrictions of reconciliation rules. It was not as robust as I would like, but nonetheless, we had to live within reconciliation. So I do think Republicans have put stuff out there. On the other hand, when your margin is only 51 votes and you lose two people, then obviously, whatever your best efforts, if you've lost two people, uh, that, that you've lost. And then lastly, I will say, where I won't defend the Republican Party, I wasn't in the Senate at the time, but that said, that there's not been, if you will, how do we get other people to understand our ideas? I personally think that uh, Medicaid will only survive if patients, if states are given a sort of risk-adjusted amount of money in which to enroll people, and they only get the money if they do enroll, it is risk-adjusted, and then they're accountable for outcomes. That's how I think this should go forward, somewhat what Milton Friedman suggested way back when, but applied to the corporate level. Um, but we have to get our fellow, my colleagues, acquainted with that. And as they do, I think they'll embrace it. And I actually think some Democrats will embrace it, too. I'm, uh, you point out that the Republican margins in both the House and the Senate are narrow, uh,
0: or, or were in 2017. Certainly, it's still narrow in the, in the, in the Senate. they lost control of the House. But... Uh, the margins weren't that narrow in the House in 2017. And when the uh, when the House leadership unveiled their repeal and replace bill, it was uh, it was not a repeal bill at all. It retained the centerpiece of the ACA, the pre-existing conditions provisions, with really minor modifications. And so can you really say that uh, that Narrow margins are the reason why uh, the Republicans were not able to do anything. And can narrow margins really explain we're not able to repeal Obamacare, first of all? And can narrow margins explain the failure to coalesce around one way of trying to address health care? Because it does seem that you know in, in 2008, 2009, 2010, and then ever since then, the Democratic Party was able to coalesce around... One plan. There were, you know, there were there were divisions. They were able to coalesce around one plan and defend that ever since. Uh, even as now, there's some divisions over um, uh, 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 what direction to head in now with respect to Medicare for all versus uh, some, so something short of a single payer program like a, a, a Medicare buy-in. Isn't, is, there, is there more unity, is there less unity on the Republican side than on the Democratic side when it comes to health
1: care? First, let's kind of work backwards. Uh, um, I think that's a line from uh, uh, All the King's Men, it's conceived in iniquity. Uh, if you read Stephen Brill's book about how Obamacare was fashioned, it was conceived in iniquity in the sense that there were all the stakeholders, pharma, hospitals, Uh, insurance companies who were at the table, deals were cut for those stakeholders so that they would do very well financially after Obamacare passed. Uh, The taxpayer and the premium payer footing the bill. Uh, And you can see that has played out. So part of the reason there's such unanimity after its kind of initial contentious uh, uh, being put into public policy is that now you have all the stakeholders who are making all kinds of money continuing to support a process and if there's ever an alternative which threatens that business model, then either directly or indirectly, those stakeholders come out in great opposition. I was a recipient of some of these faux studies where a plan we put forward, which lasted for 10 years, was scored by Avalier over 11, and in the 11th year, of course, it was not authorized, so therefore, funding went off, and whoever paid for the study got the result they wanted, the headline they wanted. We cut by X amount, which was that 10th to 11th year. Total sham, Uh, but that's the way the game is played. Um, So I think that unanimity is in part buttressed by these stakeholders who are are so invested in keeping their profit margins, uh, the swamp, if you will. That said, uh, what about a replacement? Uh, I do think that on the Republican side, there are principles that we agree to. The Children's Health Insurance Program is a very popular program. is uh, bipartisan in origin, bipartisan in reauthorization. You can imagine a CHIP 2.0, if you will, along the lines of what I just described. go to a state, say, listen, you have this patient population here, and in Louisiana we have a problem with HIV and obesity, and maybe someplace else they have a problem with opioids, and someplace else they have a problem with, pick the condition, but you're gonna have a risk-adjusted amount that you'll receive, but you only receive it if the patient is enrolled into a program. And if you lower cost, you get to keep the delta between that which you formerly spent and that which you're now saving, as long as that extra money is reinvested into public health, for example, in my state, to prevent the transmission of HIV. You bend the cost curve, not by artificially cutting rates, but by cutting the incidence of very expensive illnesses. Now, I think that is something that is built upon a model Republicans have been very familiar with, empirically we know works, and can be enhanced and extended. Uh, One last question and then we'll take some from the audience if you have
0: time. Uh, Do you have, uh, I mentioned that your committee assignments are finance, health, the Health Education, Labor and Pensions Committee, and Veterans Affairs. The the three uh, committees that 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 have the biggest hand in shaping health policy. Uh, I can envision lots of Democratic senators wanting to get on those three committees specifically. I can't envision a lot of Republicans doing so. Are uh, are you unique among Republicans in that way? Do other members of your caucus embrace health policy the way you do? Or do you find that you're sometimes uh, struggling to get the, to, uh,
1: to, to work on this issue? So obviously everybody has an expertise. Johnny Isakson, who is the chair of of uh, veterans comes from a real estate background. He knows things about real estate I have no clue about. On the other hand, he has schooled himself into health policy. Now as a physician and as a guy who comes from a hospital caring for the uninsured, I have a unique perspective, just as Johnny does on real estate that I do not have. But I do think my colleagues work very hard at understanding the issue. I was just speaking to both Chairman Grassley on finance and Pat Toomey about an issue. He's the chair of the health uh, subcommittee on an oversight issue we could do regarding Medicaid. Um, and, uh, and they were both enthused about it. So I think that there is, um, um, you know, may not be the same expertise, and to your point, finance is a highly sought after committee, and folks who are both help and VA, I think really like being on those committees. So I do think that there is, um, again, an enthusiasm about those committees.
0: Okay, do you have time for questions?
1: I think I do. Okay. Then uh,
0: we have a couple microphones. Uh, if you could raise your hand, we'll uh, send the microphones to you. First question will be back there. Uh, please, uh, I state your name and affiliation and make it a quick, crisp question, please.
2: My name is Linda Recht. I'm from the State Department. I wanted to know uh, what you think we can learn, um, positive and negative, from Veterans Affairs Healthcare.
1: You know, the Veterans Affairs Committee, what can we learn? From my perspective, you can learn that if the patient doesn't have the power, then inevitably the bureaucrats will abuse. Um, And so you think of the VA in Philadelphia, where moving expenses were being manipulated, positions created, and some people slotted, not others, principally for the knowledge of the insiders. That is wrong. Now, the VA is doing all it can to become more responsive. I get that. But, uh, but if you have the so-called street-level bureaucrat. So we had testimony from uh, somebody at a VA hospital about how mentally ill patients would have to come from an hour and a half away, and if they were missing their appointment by 15 minutes, they were not rebooked later in the day. Rather, they were rebooked for several weeks later. Now, mentally ill patients coming from hours away are not likely to show up for the return appointment. So there is, a, now that said, there are committed VA healthcare personnel. I get that. But I do think that the bureaucracy is immobilizing at times. And so what we need to learn is there has to be flexibility. The patient has to be first. The VA works where the patient is first. It does not where the people who administer are getting the benefits, not the patient. About down
0: here in front, and then, and then over on the right, please.
2: Kate Jacobs,
3: retired, ordained clergy. When I was pastoring in the early 90s, it
4: was a very wealthy member accosted me and said, why do you think healthcare is a basic human right? Do you think healthcare is a right?
1: Society has decided that healthcare is a right. Now I am very much a practical person. We can argue how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. But the reality is that if a patient's in a car wreck on the side of the road, they are not first checked for their insurance and their ability to pay. Rather, they're taken to a hospital and we figure out how to pay later. Very expensive way to deliver the care, but that's the way it works. So society has effectively decided that health care is a right. We can have all the philosophical arguments you want, but practically speaking, society has decided that, and that is the bottom line.
2: My name is Kevin Pham, and um, my question was, uh, there's a lot of extra governmental uh, organizations that hold a lot of the market power outside of, um, outside of the hands of patients in like, for instance, the hospitals, um, organizations that maintain the ICD codes and, and whatnot.
1: And the organizations that, which, that what?
2: That maintain like the ICD codes or like accreditation for hospitals or med schools and stuff like that. And those are extra governmental. Um, do you have an eye on these organizations and what do you suppose that we should do about them?
1: Well, I can't really say, simple answer no, which is not to say they should not be looked at, but we only have so much bandwidth. Uh, but you know, I'm constantly hearing from some physicians, uh, I think it was under Obamacare, that an alternative way of accreditation for recertification occurred. And there's always a sense that this was designed to benefit the organization that administers, not the individual physician. But again, I've not looked into that personally entirely because of bandwidth.
0: I do hope that the last two questioners ask the same questions of the next panel because it would be great questions for the next panel. Uh, sir, uh, uh, on the part to the left there, and then to my left anyway, and then the gentleman on the aisle, please.
2: Thank you. Um, Senator, I was
3: wondering if you could explore somewhat the tension between what you said on one hand about what you saw when government and bureaucrats ran hospitals and healthcare, but on the other looking forward about proposals that will have bureaucrats price setting when it comes to surprise we'll billing. We'll have fewer what? We're about bureaucrats being involved in price setting to deal with surprise billing or, inter- or IPI in international markets. Well, so my, my simple question is, why you think that perhaps price setting in bureaucrats comp- compared to more market-driven solutions
2: and that sort of tension that exists there?
1: So first, I'm not sure in surprise medical... In fact, in surprise medical billing, what we're working on does not price set. In fact, we're trying to avoid price-setting. As regards the international reference pricing, that is a broken market. It is not a market where the vendor sets a price and you have no choice whatsoever. We don't do that anyplace else. Uh, The closest analogy is utility pricing, where you do get a monopoly. You're given a state-sanctioned monopoly, but in utility pricing, you have to justify the price which you are giving. Um, In current drug pricing, if you're unique in your class, innovative, there is no limit to what you can charge. That is not a market. Now, under the international reference pricing, there is at least some relationship to that which other people find fair. And you could argue, well, wait a second, this one country didn't do it right, so you do a market basket. Um, now, you could say, well, wait a second, we shouldn't do that, we should just import the drug. Some advocate that, because that would restore the market. Uh, turns out, we're just importing the price, but not the drug. Because the idea is if you import the drug, your acquisition cost would be their acquisition cost. It's far more efficient to say, what is your acquisition price, and that's what we're going to peg to. Um, so, is it ideal? No. But do we want to reward innovation with some sort of monopoly? Yes. Do we want the ability for someone to price a drug of low marginal value at whatever they wish, but have a fancy marketing campaign which drives demand? No, we don't. So we're trying to seek that balance. If there is a better balance, I'm so totally open to it.
0: Yeah. Okay, I think we'll make this the last question for the senator. Gentleman on the aisle, please.
1: Uh, Ian Hogg. I'm a student at George Mason, a senior student. Um, this subject is very interesting, and as you can tell from the accent, you know, I'm British where we have... You know, healthcare for all and the american healthcare system is the most expensive you know in the world um, but it doesn't actually achieve the best health in the world for the american population you know one little example of that is that you know america pays a lot more for drugs than most of the rest of the world does that mean that the drug companies are making super profits you know, in America, but they're making less super profits in the rest of the world? So a couple things. I mean, you have a lot of things loaded into that um, uh, statement in question. Um, um, Clearly, drug companies are making their biggest margins in the United States. And they would say that the U.S. pays for their R&D. And that's probably substantially true. Um, that, uh, and, and therein lies the idea behind the international reference pricing that you could somehow shave that, maybe force a little bit of the underwriting of that R&D to other rich countries. Uh, you know, you squeeze a little bit here and it's like a tube of toothpaste that spreads out there. Now, but by the way, one more, one more thing I will say, as regards the poor outcomes in the US system, it's been a little while since I've looked at this, but if you take Americans over age 65, we actually have better outcomes. Um, If you look at our lower uh, or higher mortality rates, those are typically diseases associated with self-destructive lifestyle. So right now, for example, non-college educated whites are having a diminishing uh, 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 length of span, lifespan related to alcoholism, cirrhosis, opioid overdose, other diseases, if you will, of despair, as described by an economist at at Princeton. That's not related to our healthcare system, except insofar perhaps opioids, um, you see that there. Uh, But if you look at people over 65, we actually do better. So I do think that in our free society, one does have the freedom to choose a lifestyle which is destructive. As tragically as tragic as that is, it's a reality.
0: Uh, and with that, I think we'll uh, p- bring this panel to a close. I want to thank Dr. Cassidy for joining us. Thank you. Thank
5: you, thank you. gentle.
0: And um, uh, he will be leaving the stage. And I, I want to invite John Goodman and uh, Paul Ginsberg and David Hyman to come join us. Join me up here. Thank you and especially John, thank you uh, uh, for. Uh, For patient power, I gushed over this book a little bit with Dr. Cassidy. I want to gush over it a a little more with you. But first, uh, what I'd like to do is just uh, introduce each of our speakers uh, before they speak. And so I'll introduce John Goodman right now uh, and hear from him some of his thoughts uh, 25 years after patient power. John C. Goodman is one of the nation's leading thinkers on health policy. Uh, He founded the National Center for Policy Analysis, was president there for... 31 years. Uh, he's written nine books. Uh, to my mind, the most influential, at least the most influential on me, has been Patient Power. Uh, it shaped a lot of my thinking on health. I've probably still learned more from that than from any other health policy book that I've written. Uh, and uh, John is, you know, off, you'll see John's work frequently in the Wall Street Journal uh, and other leading, uh, leading outlets. And it was patient power that uh, earned John the name, uh, the the uh, the moniker, the Father of Health Savings Accounts. I think it was the Father of Medical Savings Accounts at first, and then Bill Thomas changed the name, and now it's Health Savings Accounts. And so if any of you out there uh, in the audience here watching online have a tax-free health savings account that you're using to pay your out-of-pocket medical expenses, helping you save towards your medical expenses in retirement, uh, John Goodman deserves a large measure, measure of the thanks. Well, I deserve a penny every time I use it. Oh, I didn't realize you get royalties. All right. Well, that's not bad. There's billions of dollars in health savings accounts right now, so you, I'm going to stop worrying about you. Okay, John.
4: Sure. Well, thank you, Michael, for having me. Thank you to the Cato Institute, my relationship with Cato goes way, way back. Uh, I remember when this building was being built, and Ed Crane pulled me aside, and he said, you know, John, for $5,000, I'll name a urinal after you. And- LAUGHTER Uh, Of course, I didn't have any money at the time, but I was down the hall uh, just a few minutes ago and noticed there's still no name on the urinal, so maybe the offer could still be open. Uh, David Friedman used to have this uh, message on his uh, website. It said, I'm David Friedman. I work for such and such a law school, and I teach courses in law and economics, and I have never had a course for credit in either subject, which I thought was really interesting. But I could do something similar at my website if I wanted to because in my professional life, my two fields have been public choice and health economics, and I've never had a course even audited <laughs> uh, in either area. David, of course, had an excuse. His, uh, he learned economics over the breakfast table from the economist who was probably the best economist in the world at the time. And uh, over at the Chicago Law School, all the people cutting edge applying economics to law were friends of the family. So with all that, you don't need to go to class. Uh, In my case, uh, there was a different reason. Nothing was being said in the classroom that was helping me answer the questions I wanted to answer. Now, 40 years ago, I did a a study of the British National Health Service. It was mentioned earlier. And uh, at that time, there's no theory of why governments do what they do, even though a lot of weird things were going on, including often doing the opposite of what they said they were doing. Uh, And so I began doing what I think all economists should do in every area, And that is I began asking, what are the incentives of the decision makers? And in any political system, if you're the Minister of Health, you're going to discover very quickly one overriding fact. And that is half the population in any given year is spending, I'm sorry, 5% of the population in any given year is spending half the money. Or in political terms, what that means is a half your budget is being spent on 5% of the voters, And a good many of those are so sick, they'll never get to the polls to vote for you. Now, in a democracy, that's just an unacceptable outcome. And so what the British started doing, uh, uh, and I documented this a long time ago, is they took money away from the really sick and spent a lot of dollars on the relatively healthy. Uh, Or, if you like, uh, they were taking money away from the very few really expensive people and spending a lot of money on a lot of other people who... uh, Uh, who are far uh, with far fewer problems. The same thing is true in Canada. Just to give you one example, in, in Britain and Canada today, it's a lot easier to see a doctor than in the United States. Significantly easier. But there are fewer things that doctors can do. So if you're in Canada and you have a serious problem, you're probably gonna go to the emergency room. Now in a typical province up there, the wait in the emergency room is four hours on average. And one out of five patients leave without ever seeing a doctor uh, because they simply get tired of, of waiting. Well, once I begin to understand how decisions are made in political, how the politics of medicine works, I begin to better understand how our own Medicare system works. Because what's happening in Medicare is that we're offering a free wellness exam to every senior in the country, even though doctors say it's worthless and there's no reason to spend money in that way. And yet at the same time, if you're really sick and you go in the hospital for an extended time, there's no limit to how much you could end up paying. And in our Medicare drug program, uh, we make inexpensive drugs that almost anybody could afford, available for free or almost for free. But if you're sick and uh, you get into the donut hole, you can pay thousands of dollars. Now, there's no way to explain that, except in terms of the perverse incentives that, uh, uh, that I am describing. Um, now, then I turn my attention to the rest of the healthcare system. And um, here in the rest of the healthcare system, there is one other. We start asking what people's incentives are. The overriding fact in the rest of the healthcare system is this that there is nowhere in the system that anyone has an incentive to pay the medical bills of people who are really sick. No one wants a really sick person. Uh, not the employer, not the insurance company, not the hospital, not even the government agencies. And so, um, So what do employers do? We have a law that says they can't discriminate uh, against the employee or the employee's families. Uh, But they're perfectly free to design health plans that appeal to the healthy and repel the sick. And long before there was Obamacare, a typical employer plan would cover primary care at no cost or very little cost to the employee. But if the employee went in the hospital, the employee could pay thousands of dollars uh, out of pocket uh, for care. Um, Now, when you go over to the exchange created under Obamacare, you have two forces. You have the government uh, coming in one direction and the private insurance companies in another. So politicians do what they always do in the politics of medicine. They say, well, look, we need a lot of free services for a lot of voters, so contraceptives are free, mammograms are free, a lot of other things are free. But if you get sick, you can pay $7,000 uh, before the insurers start paying. If you're, if you're a couple, it could be 14000 And if you go out of network, you could pay thousands and thousands of dollars and not be reimbursed at all. And why would you go out of network? Well, you wouldn't do it unless you had a serious problem that nobody in your network uh, uh, could take care of. And then on the private insurer side, we have a very imperfect system of uh, risk adjustment. And the bottom line is that all the plans have an incentive to attract the healthy and avoid the sick. And you can see that in the way they design their plans and what they do. Um, how do you attract the healthy? Healthy people buy on price. So you get the premium down. How do you get your premium down? By having really high deductibles and by paying the doctors and hospitals Medicaid rates and saying if you don't want to accept a Medicaid rate, you're, you're not in our, in our network. Uh, so that's what they're doing. So where I live in Dallas, Texas, you cannot find an individual uh, plan anywhere, not just in the exchange. You cannot buy individual insurance in Dallas, Texas, that will get you through the door of UT Southwestern, which is probably the best medical research facility in the whole world. Uh, If you're in Texas and you have Obamacare, you can't go down to MD Anderson Hospital. Around the rest of the country, you're denied uh, access to... uh, Mayo Clinic and and we we could give many, many more examples. Bottom line is these folks are denied access to the best doctors and the best hospitals. And the reason is because nobody wants them in the plan to begin with. Uh, They don't want sick people and they have no incentive to design a plan that's good for sick people. Um, One of the point I want to make is that nobody understands this system. The people who think they do, the doctors, the insurance companies, Health directors of companies, but they really don't. So if you ask a doctor, you know, what's wrong with healthcare today, I say, well, the insurance companies, the government, sometimes the patients. Uh, well, doctor, what would happen if the insurance company and the government weren't there? Oh, well, then we'd be practicing like, uh, like Dr. Welby, right? They really think that. Uh, but it's not true. If the insurance companies weren't there and the government weren't there, no, they would be practicing more like lawyers practice or accountants practice. And what do lawyers do? Well, lawyers talk to you by phone. They email you. They use Skype. I mean, their business uh, methodology has completely changed. And, and that hasn't registered on most doctors. They don't realize that if there were a real free market there that a lot of things would have to change for them if they had to compete for patients. And I'll just give one antidote, and then I'll be quiet. Um, the other day, uh, Humana sent a nurse by. I'm in the Humana Medicare Advantage plan, and she says, "I want to see all the pills you're taking." So I brought out, you know, all my little pill bottles, and she took pencil and paper and wrote down the information on each of the uh, uh, containers. And then a couple of weeks later, I went to the eye doctor, and a technician came in. He turned on his computer. He asked me a few questions, and he started asking me about my medications. And I'm sitting there, and I'm shocked. Well, how do you know what medications I'm taking? He said, well, that was easy. I just went online to your pharmacy, and I've got them all right here on my screen. So what's the lesson there? The lesson there is the eye doctor is getting ready to compete in a real competitive marketplace, and the folks over at Humana still have a lot to learn. Thanks.
0: Okay. Thank you, John. Uh, Next up, we've got Paul Ginsberg. Paul, uh, I'm glad you're able to join us. I can't remember the last time we had you on the panel, so I'm glad you're here. Uh, uh, Paul was the, head of, the founder and head of the Center for Studying Health System Change from 1995 to 2013. He is now the uh, Leonard D. Schaefer Chair in Health Policy Studies at the Brookings Institution and a member of the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, which is the uh, government body that advises Medicare on setting prices and setting the other terms of exchange and its dealings with uh, everything from drug companies to hospitals to physicians. And, uh, Paul, take it away.
5: Thanks, Michael. Um, I'm going to focus my remarks on health savings accounts, since that's what I thought we'd be talking about with with John here. Uh, And let me say right up front, I'm not a fan of health savings accounts for a number of reasons. Uh, There are three. Uh, One is that I think the notion of consumers having a lot of potential to be better shoppers for health care if only they have the right incentives, is not panning out. I think HSAs are designed for a model of fragmented care rather than coordinated care that many believe to have more potential for quality and value. Uh, second, uh, to date, the health savings again benefit has served much more as a tax shelter for the well-off and as a support for consumerism. And third, one of the reasons that the health care is so expensive in the United States is the heavy subsidies of health care by the tax system, the biggest one being the exclusion of employer and employee contributions uh, to employee health benefits. And HSAs, to me, spread these tax subsidies even beyond what they apply to uh, without them, so that some who can fund their HSAs heavily can have all of their health care services uh, subsidized by the tax system. Uh, now, before I get into these three factors in depth, I want to point out that there are some aspects of HSAs that are very valuable. I think particularly valuable is the ability to make deductibles acceptable to the public by providing cash flow to secure needed care. that We know that many people don't have much in the way of savings, and if the HSA or an HRA can provide the cash flow to consume care, it can make the deductible much more viable, acceptable. Now, I think that HRAs, which are health reimbursement accounts, do this better because the magnitude of the accounts is chosen to make the deductibles feasible for employees and not to serve as a tax shelter. Now, I want to give you talk, go back to my three reasons now. One is the shopping model is not panning out. Ever since we went to high deductible plans and either HSAs or HRAs, there's been a substantial literature emerging that has studied groups of employees with high deductible plans and accounts and they find minimal shopping for price. There's a recent Zach Cooper study about uh, shopping for MRIs of the knees that shows amazingly few consumers with incentives to shop, doing the shopping, and many passing by lower cost uh, MRI sources uh, on the way to go to the MRI place that their doctor Suggested. Um, I think high deductible plans, with or without savings accounts, are likely to have very limited impacts on inpatient care because deductibles and out of pocket maximums are typically exceeded for any hospital stay, meaning that there's little incentive to compare hospital prices. So you're taking the bulk of your spending, putting it out of bounds at the beginning. And John mentioned, you know, the notion of the healthy people who insurance appeals to. This is something where, again, this type of shopping is focusing on what healthy people who don't spend much of the healthcare dollar can do. Uh, Now, I also want to mention that I believe that narrow networks or networks that are just not overly broad can be a much more powerful tool to help consumers save money on health care in a market environment. It's a lot easier lift for consumers to choose a network once a year than to shop for individual health care services. Networks, I believe, are also more consistent with coordinated care. Uh, and I see some very promising examples of networks being built around uh, dominant name brand uh, health systems. Uh, as a way to uh, attract uh, consumers. Now, the second issue the tax shelter for the well off. I went to the, some of the IRS tables and for 2014 found that 61% of the value, the tax saving value of the HSA exclusion and the HSA deduction, the latter is what when people make their own contributions to the HSAs. Uh, goes to hosp- households having an income of $100,000 a year or more, a uh, category which only accounts for 16% of returns. Uh, you know, this is, this is a tax shelter. I think it appeals to many people because of that. It's not a way to save money in health care. And the final point I want to make is about the extensive subsidization of health care. Um, I've probably said it enough before that basically highly subsidized health care is a problem. It's one of the key reasons why U.S. healthcare care spending as a percentage of GDP is so much higher than other advanced countries is because we subsidize it so heavily. Our health insurance plans are more comprehensive than they would be if not subsidized. Uh, they're less restrictive on care. Uh, and if we just take that subsidy that goes through our employer-based health insurance, and then expand that to all the rest of healthcare services, including the ones that are not important enough to be typically covered by insurance. Um, we're just going to drive healthcare spending even higher, and contribute to the inefficiency in our system. Thank you.
0: Okay. Thank you very much, Paul. And. Uh... Next up is David Hyman. David is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and a professor of law at Georgetown University. He is a uh, physician as well as a law professor, and he is the author of, so far as I know, two books uh, now. Two two by the Cato Institute, and a contributor to uh, other books as well. Uh, His first being Medicare Meets Methodistophilies. His second and most recent one being Overcharged, Why Americans Pay Too Much for Healthcare.
3: David? Can you pass the... Slide. Um, So uh, thanks to the Cato Institute and to Michael uh, for inviting me uh, to speak and to John for writing the book and giving us the happy occasion of reflecting on it um, some 27 years uh, after it was originally published. Uh, I teach 24-year-old on-up law students, and so it's important, uh, first of all, to remember your frame of reference is not theirs. Um, And so I think it's useful to actually think back about what the world was like in 1992 and a little bit earlier when the book was being published. Uh, And so I'll talk a little bit about things that have changed and things that remain the same uh, in that context. Um, So uh, one of the great things that's different in uh, 2019 as opposed to 1992 is we have the internet, and so you can find all this stuff. And it turns out there are two different covers of the book. Uh, that were published. Uh, one, Solving America's Healthcare Crisis is the subtitle and the other is the Free Enterprise Alternative to Clinton's Health Plan. Uh, for those of you who don't remember 1992 is when Bill Clinton gets elected and then we launch uh, an extended process of debating what becomes known as Care, uh, and the book gets reissued obviously with the subscript to try and uh, uh, capture that uh, you also find uh, customer reviews on Amazon. Uh, it's important to note that changing the title dramatically reduced uh, the ratings. Although there's a small sample problem here, uh, that's also uh, worthy of note. Uh, the other thing, um, given that Johnson an economist, uh, as it's worth looking at what the price point is, not what the book sold originally, which was 16.95, but. Uh, if you want a new copy of the one on the left, it's $723 now, so the rate of increase in uh, John's book far exceeds the rate of increase in spending on health care, so he's got that <laughs> going for him. Um, the, the newer uh, one is going for less, uh, which is sort of an interesting phenomena. Um, the other thing is, though, uh, if you look at the back of the book, you'll see it got blurbed by uh, some famous people. Uh, but if you look at Amazon, you'll also see some other blurbs by, among others, William F. Buckley. And the one at the bottom, it's probably hard for people in the back to see, uh, Playboy uh, writes up about the book. Now, I'd be fired if my books had been evaluated by Playboy because uh, I work for a Catholic law school. Um, <laughs> But uh, what this shows is the extent to which discussions about the issues that are raised in the book uh, were sort of mainstream. Everybody was interested in this, concerned about it. Uh, And the book, as we've heard already, I think has had a a disproportionate impact. Um, So some things are different between uh, 2019 and 1992. Um, We've seen pretty substantial payment side innovation. There are now millions of people in HSAs and HRAs, each of whom are spending their own money. Paul's already talked a little bit about the population that's affected by it and that has opted in and the extent to which Uh, we were extending subsidies that were already in the system rather than perhaps trying to get rid of them entirely, which is the sort of thing economists uh, like, but politicians really don't view that as a way of getting reelected. We also see alternatives to the cost-plus payment system. The book includes several chapters on this, and uh, we've obviously, or perhaps not so obviously, if you don't specialize in this area, seen the rise of a whole series of Uh, different strategies for payment system that are flourishing to varying degrees in different parts of the market. But I think more importantly, we've seen substantial delivery side uh, innovation in healthcare here in the United States, the rise of retail medicine. uh, It used to be there were doc in the boxes, now it's uh, certified nurse professional over at your local Target or Walmart. Um, direct primary care and concierge care. I think though one of the most important things is the rise of pharma as an issue of public concern. If you look at the index of the book, you'll find a single reference to pharmaceuticals. Uh, It's really not viewed as a serious or major issue. Uh, Drugs, there's no entry at all in the index. Um, But in terms of public visibility and spending and spending trends, pharmaceuticals are the big issue for lots of people. It's not an accident Martin Shkreli becomes the most hated person in America for a brief period of time. Um, And so that's, I think, a big change between the world that the book is aiming at and talking about and where we are now. Um, Something else is different. We spend a lot more on health care uh, than we did in 1992. In 1992, we spent $854 billion. We currently spend $3.5 trillion are the sort of latest figures here. If you take out um, general inflation, uh, 92 looks a little bit more. And so the rise is not quite as extreme, but it's still $1.3 trillion. I think if we were spending uh, $858 billion or $1.3 trillion now, people would be throwing parties and thrilled Um, although it's obviously a very sizable amount of money. So that's a a very different world that we live in now uh, with the same sets of complaints about we're spending a lot of money on healthcare, we're not really getting the value that we think we ought to get, and there are all sorts of ways in which people are frustrated with both the payment side and the delivery side. That said, there are lots of things that are the same, right? We're still having the same arguments that we were. Um, Many of the same people are there, some 25 years older. Uh, Same arguments, same political economy, lots of the same market-defeating or market-frustrating governmental policies. We still have certificate of need. We still have disputes about scope of practice. Uh, We have new things that we're paying for in dysfunctional ways. Um, but lots of things are the same. And there are mostly the same market dynamics. So lots of water under the bridge, some things are different, some things are the same. And uh, let me just close with a brief uh, observation, comparing the book that we did, published by the Cato Institute, with the book that John did, published by the Cato Institute. So what's changed? Well, John's book was written by two economists, and our book is written by two law professors. Uh, And I don't want to suggest that Cato has suddenly decided to abandon economics in favor of law. But if you compare the two books, John's book is full of figures and tables, and we've got lots of stories. That's the comparative advantage of law professors, I guess, in action. Um, Second, our book uh, uh, has endnotes. I'm I'm sorry. Our book has endnotes and John has footnotes. John's book was 657 pages for 16.95. Ours is a little bit shorter, and the price is a little bit higher. So the price per page has gone up, at least in nominal terms, but it's actually declined in real terms, which is a very different factor than what we see in the healthcare system. Uh, and the final point I want to flag, which dovetails with larger disputes about healthcare and surprise medical billing, is to ask the question: Are list prices meaningful in the book market? as opposed to the healthcare market. So let me stop there and turn it over to Michael.
0: Thank you, but at um, more than $700 for a, a, a new version of the first edition, that's more than $1 per page. So it's more than double the price of, of overcharge at this point. I guess it's
3: appreciated. The, um, John just bought up all the supply. <laughs> right. I should have.
0: <laughs> so that was actually not two versions of the same book, though. That was uh, the, the original book with the subtitle Solving America's Healthcare Crisis was the big 600-page one. Uh, subsequent to that, w- when the Clinton health plan was introduced, uh, well, first by the administration and then in Congress, the candidates put out an abbreviated version, which is the free uh, patient power, the free enterprise alternative to the Clinton health plan. It came out in a couple different iterations. There was this, which looks like it's you know a five by uh, four by six mm-hmm. size. There was also a, a a smaller pocket version of this of of, of this same edition. So uh, before uh, w- we move on to uh, uh, a discussion. I, I wanted to share uh, some observations about the book, a couple things that, uh, that I think it, it got right and uh, d- uh, uh, that really helped to advance the uh, debate over health policy and healthcare reform in the United States, and then a couple things I wish I had seen more of in patient power. So, the three things that it got right is obviously first on the list you have to put medical savings accounts. Because if you recall, uh, prior to uh, uh, 1992, with its huge tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance that favors not only employer-sponsored insurance over other types of insurance arrangements, like insurance you would purchase directly from an insurance company, the tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance favored third-party payment over direct payment for healthcare services. As a result, employer plans were getting more and more generous over time. They were, or I should, I don't like the word generous. They were getting more and more comprehensive. They covered more and more stuff, insulating the patient from the cost of the care that the patient was consuming. And the idea that uh, we could change the tax, change this distortion in the tax code in a way that leveled the playing field to an extent, leveled the playing field between first party payment and third party payment was revolutionary. And there are, uh, you know, there are fair criticisms of of that approach. Some of Paul's criticisms, I think, are 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 not only uh, uh, you know age-old criticisms that have been around since uh, uh, John uh, and and Cato published *Patient Power*. Uh, but some of the I would say that some of the reason valid. I mean, there is a, a a problem in that the tax preference is worth a lot more to people at uh, the higher end of the income scale. Uh, I have a different diagnosis of uh, exactly why we why we. Why we see that that symptom there, and we can get into that later. But uh, medical savings accounts and health savings accounts really were a revolutionary idea, uh, and John deserves a lot of credit for his foresight in bringing uh, bringing that to the nation's that idea to the nation's attention. Uh, number two, uh, patient power attacked the idea of licensing healthcare clinicians, licensing doctors. It attacked the idea that you should have to get the government's approval before you can you can practice medicine. That's something that rarely even happens today, much less back in 1992, where everyone assumed that, of course, you need the government uh, to sign off on, uh, to to create that barrier to entry into the marketplace. Uh, John, uh, as some other economists had done, but John uh, and uh, and Gerald Musgrave popularized, this has had a lot of negative effects, not only increasing uh, the prices for healthcare services, uh, but also restricting choice in health insurance and maybe even uh, impacting uh, the, the, uh, the quality of care, uh, not in a positive direction, but in a negative direction. Uh, and, and finally, this is something that, uh, that, that John uh, uh, spoke about in, in, in your, your opening remarks. I think the patient power's explanation, I, I should say it's public choice explanation, or the explanation of the public choice dynamics involved in government-run health care uh, was... Uh, was, uh, uh, I don't want to say revolutionary, it was the application of some ideas that were uh, were being kicked around at the time to health care where no one else had applied them before. The idea that a government-run system will always favor the elites over the healthy and will always favor the healthy over the sick because that's where power is in a democracy, uh, I think it's something that you know, has been, uh, has, has, was borne out by evidence at the time and has been borne out by more evidence ever since uh, and yet hasn't been popularized enough that people who work on, uh, live, and, um, um, uh, operate, live under and operate these systems have appreciated it yet. Uh, nor is it something I think that single-payer advocates in the United States appreciate, which would explain why they're um, uh, still advocating that approach. What I would like to see more of uh, in, in patient power, though, is more of an exploration into the effects of licensing on the quality of care because it, it's not just the case that licensing increased prices and kind of restricted health insurance choices and, and so forth. The kinds of plans that offer the coordinated care that Paul is talking about are, are the, were the main target of organized medicine when once organized medicine uh, came to control, once the AMA and its uh, member organizations really came to control the, uh, the the barriers to entry into the medical profession that the government had created, and they used it. and John does talk about this in his book, "Inpatient Power." They used that power to block competition from plans that off, offer coordinated care, like the Ross Luce Clinic, and other integrated prepaid group plans. The reason Kaiser Permanente broke through and was and is still. Uh, You know, and now the only fully integrated prepaid group plan is because Henry Kaiser was a billionaire, and you needed a billionaire's wealth to be able to break through these sorts of barriers. Those plans offer all sorts of, or or strong on all sorts of dimensions of quality, like coordinated care, where the rest of our fragmented fee-for-service healthcare sector is weak. And I think, uh, uh, if anything, patient power understates the case. Uh, that licensing uh, has had a negative impact on on quality. Uh, I, I would have, uh, I, I believe that it's in patient power that John makes the point that uh, tax preferences are uh, just the flip side of a mandate. That if the government says if you buy health insurance you get a tax break, what it's essentially saying is uh, the the existence of or what it's saying is either you. Uh, it's the functional equivalent of the government saying, buy this uh, product or you'll pay more money to the government. You'll pay a penalty to the government. We may call it a, uh, a financial incentive or a tax break, but the economics are really identical. Uh, I think that if we had, uh, if, if Patient Power and other authors along the way had focused more, and John has done this, uh, focused more on, uh, on how, uh, a tax preference to purchase health insurance and a mandate to purchase health insurance are functionally equivalent, I think uh, health policy would have come a lot farther than it has so far. Uh, and the third thing uh, that I think I would have liked to see more of, if I could get the, uh, the remote, please, is if you, uh, if you look at the tax exclusion, we can call up uh, my, uh, my slide deck again, please. If you look at the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored insurance, which is one of these uh, tar- uh, a, t- a tax preference for people who purchase health insurance. Uh, you will notice that it operates in the following manner. It says to workers, either you let work, uh, employers control, let me see if we have this here, uh, about $15,000 of your compensation. And uh, allow if you have a a family plan through your employer, and let your employer use that money to choose your health plan, then you're going to have to pay taxes on that money. What that does is it induces it tells workers either let someone else control your your health care your health insurance dollars and pick your health plan, or you're going to have to pay more money to the federal government. As I mentioned, that's the functional equivalent of a mandate. But but there's something. Extra perverse about the uh, the employer uh, the tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance, it induces people to let an, their employer to cho- uh, control that money and choose their health plan, which is this is my, these are numbers for the Kaiser Family Foundation that show that in two thousand eighteen it was uh, uh, employers who purchased family coverage for their workers uh, reduced their workers' wages by about 14000 uh, dollars to to the so-called employer portion of the premium. Uh, if you sum that up across all workers, then what I, what you end up with is what I call uh, spending subject to government coercion here, which is about 1.4 trillion or 37% of, uh, of healthcare spending in the United States. Uh, that's how much of, uh, that, that's a huge chunk of health spending that the government controls because it tells you workers, either you let someone... Uh, Either you let your employers control that money and choose your health plan, or you're going to pay more money uh, to the U.S. government. I think had we developed that, uh, uh, had patient power uh, looked into this a little closer and developed it more, we would be closer to uh, to getting rid of the tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance entirely, not just using health savings accounts to sort of level the playing field somewhat between first- and third-party payment, employer-sponsored insurance, and individual market insurance. And if we did so... Uh, and it, well, this is another perspective on all of the money that employers get to control, all, all th- their workers' money that employers get to control. It shows that the exclusion uh, f- for uh, employer-paid premiums is about, o- over the next, uh, over a 10-year period, is about four uh, four and $4.5 trillion. Dollars. But that's uh, only about half of, that's, that's the revenue loss of the federal government from the exclusion. If you compare that to the amount of, their workers' compensation that employers get to control over that same ten-year period—it's only half that amount. In fact, the amount of money that, uh, that uh, the amount of their workers' money that employers get to control, thanks to the tax exclusion, is about nine trillion dollars over a ten-year period, which you'll notice is about roughly equal to federal Medicare spending over that same ten-year period. So really. Uh, I think uh, what uh, Patient Power might have done better, and I think we all uh, who work in health policy might do better, is focus on how the tax preference for employer sponsored insurance, in addition to all of these perverse incentives that it introduces into the market for health insurance, is really, really creates a government program that's managed, that's run by private employers that coerces employees, into gi- workers, into giving up control of their money to someone else, letting those people control uh, their health insurance decisions, and that reforming or eliminating the tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance would, uh, be, could be a tax cut on the level of uh, eliminating the Medicare program. If we return all, as this shows, it's about $700 billion per year now, but $9 trillion over a 10-year period to workers, that would be returning to workers an amount equal to the amount that uh, the federal government spends on uh, Medicare every year. Uh, I think that uh, instead of just a narrow focus on uh, giving, uh, instead of just taking a, a narrow perspective on using health savings accounts as a way to give workers control over just the first few thousand dollars of their earnings, I, I think we might look at the tax preference from employer-sponsored insurance as this sort of government program that, uh, leverages the tax code to separate workers from a lot more of their money than that. Uh, and once we do that, that points toward reforms that could eventually give workers control over all of that $9 trillion, or all the $15,000 they lose control over every year, uh, which is uh, actually something that David Hyman and Charlie Silver recommend in uh, in, in their book, Overcharged. They go farther than just... Uh, proposing to reform the tax code with health savings accounts as John did and patient power or with what I call large health savings accounts, which builds on John's idea to try to give workers all <laughs> control over all of that $15,000. Uh, they recommend completely eliminating all pre- tax preferences for employer-sponsored insurance. So with that, I want to just open things up first to John, if you want to respond to me I, uh, or yeah, anything I, that anyone yeah, else on the panel has I, said I before we to make a very, questions.
4: very brief comment. This may surprise some of you, but I have, I have a lot of sympathy with... Uh, much of what Paul had to say, uh, and especially what he had to say about the tax system. Uh, I have always been more progressive than almost anybody in Congress who calls himself a progressive. I've always believed that in matters of health, we should all be treated the same by the government, regardless of income. Uh, so so the, I've always said that, that's in fact, is in patient power. Um, but um, And also, the medical savings account it, it, it is not working the way it could work because it was designed by politicians. But here's what we need to say, that we know the market can work and work really, really well in healthcare. You know, when Canadians come down here for their knees and their hips, they get a package price. They know what they're gonna pay. And that price is what Medicare pays or less, all right? Over in India, we have a huge market for medical tourism, some of the best medical care in the world, high quality, low cost. In the United States, in our Medicaid program, we have cash and counseling. The homebound disabled are managing their budget. Satisfaction rates are in the high 90%. You don't see that anywhere in the world. So we have lots of examples showing that we could really have a good, vibrant market for health care. And the fact that we have this poorly designed account that's not really working very well shouldn't keep us from taking advantage of what we really could have access to.
5: Exactly. I want to say, uh, I, you know, being the token non-conservative on the panel, am not a believer in Medicare for all, of that stuff. I am a believer in markets, and it is really great to have John talking about where markets can really work. You know, we still have this issue that, uh, you know, you can have a market for a very well-defined episode, and people can travel to get it. But that for your typical care where the patient doesn't know what's wrong, goes into the hospital, you know, that's not a shoppable service. So we need to have something that works for services that are not shoppable, which is where I think the network is the market tool to do it, but also have a role for, have an opportunity for episodes that are shoppable uh, to be shopped for. Well, do
0: health savings accounts allow that? If Congress t- were to expand and say uh, uh, so that the contribution limits would be large enough that the average worker could put all fifteen thousand dollars of the employer contribution into the large health savings account, no. and then they could choose either their employer's plan or they could enroll in a uh, in a uh, health insurance plan that has a closed narrow network with a closed panel, so that they know where the, they're going to be getting. All of their medical care for that year and they could change that decision from year to year but then uh, they would be able to access the very sort of um, uh, coordinated care system that you're talking about.
5: Yeah are you talking about pulling apart the insurance pool? I mean there, there are a lot of things you have to work out. Uh, you know if you can have a situation where you have the employer, first of all people need insurance. A really big health savings account if it does not provide insurance, is not going to do it because...
0: I'm talking about taking that money and using it to purchase a health insurance purchase, Okay.
5: So I think, you know, this may not be the time to discuss these issues, but that, you know, the notion of you can be in your employer's plan or you can be in a plan not related to your employer. The risk selection issues are awesome. I don't know whether they can be solved. I think what you really want to do is you want, like what Walmart is doing, You know, people who work for Walmart who have the Walmart plan are told, you know, you 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 have a back, you think you need back surgery, go to one of our centers of excellence. We'll pay your way. We'll give you less cost sharing, and uh, and they get really good care. They get the best care that way. I think that's where there are opportunities to put market forces in, rather than, you know, messing with the wrist pool.
4: I'd like to add that the design of the health savings account, designed by Congress, it really was designed with healthy people in mind. Uh, I hate to admit that, but it's true. So then you have to ask, well, what would it look like if you designed a health savings account for sick people? Well, suppose Michael's my employee and he's got diabetes. And suppose he's costing us $3,000 every year. And I say to Michael, well, Michael, and i tell you what, if, if you don't manage your own care, <laughs> I'll put thousand. $2,500 in the account and you can keep whatever you don't spend. Uh, you don't have to do this, but but I'll make that deal with you. Now we have an account for a sick person. We have it reasonably related to his expenses. He has incentives to, to improve quality, reduce costs. I mean, that's what's happening in the cash and counseling program. And so, so my greatest uh, disappointment with health savings account is they cannot be easily used for people with chronic health conditions. That's where all the money's being spent. David? Let's go to the audience.
0: All right. Well, we'll be happy to take audience questions. Uh, again, please wait for the microphone. Uh, please identify yourself and any relevant uh, affiliation, and make them crisp questions. We got a question in the back, right there. Please.
5: Three quarters or more of the industry, essentially. Where is the future of health care for private health insurance people
2: if you
4: well if you're thinking about individually purchased insurance we've, we've, we've basically regulated out of the market what what used to be available and as I said earlier if you're in Dallas Texas you can't buy a plan that gets you into CT Southwestern so we have so radically changed the market that um, that I know people who are rushing to try to get group insurance just because uh, the individual insurance is so bad. Um, I would like to see the states have enormous flexibility to clean up these markets. That's what I'm trying to convince Senator Castillo. <laughs> Let the state do anything it wants to do, provided that it has a plan to make care better for sick people. So you, what does better mean? It means premiums come down, deductibles come down, networks get get broader as long as the state's doing it, has a plan to do it, let them do anything else. And I think it has to be done at the state level because it's so darn complicated and the differences are so great from state to state. There's no way Congress can ever clean up this mess.
0: So there is uh, one option and really only one option left for people who don't want a heavily regulated insurance plan. Most of the private insurers, as you say, are now selling to the government. Well, that's, the, that's their main customer, certainly through the Medicare Advantage program. Uh, if you uh, buy my line about employer-sponsored insurance being basically a government program, uh, because the government has designed the insurance package to, uh, by, just by saying it has to be through an employer, uh, if nothing else, uh, then you know, most of the market is, uh, has been uh, uh, either heavily shaped by uh, the government or the government's the, uh, customer, the main customer of the insurance companies. Uh, that used to not be the case in the individual market. Uh, prior to the ACA, it was regulated, sometimes heavily in some states, but you had a reasonably free market in the individual market. Now that's gone. Uh, the ACA has imposed on their, uh, on it not just a, a rigid definition of benefits that you have to everyone has to buy in that market, but it also regulates the price of health insurance in that market so that it increases premiums for the healthy in order to reduce premiums for the sick. The only remaining market that's not subject to all of these rules and uh, that are direct regulation or uh, rules attached to government subsidies is something you call the the market for something we call short-term limited duration insurance. There's an exemption in federal law. It's been there for a couple decades uh, from federal health insurance regulation for something called short-term limited duration insurance. And that's all that it says in the law, short-term limited duration insurance. That's exempt. It doesn't define it. Uh, And there is a uh, set definition for 20 years. The Obama administration uh, 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 rest- restricted uh, short-term plans more than they had been for the first 20 years. Uh, that happened in, uh took effect in 2017. And then the Trump administration uh, uh, gave them much more flexibility. So that now you can, uh, in effect, use a short-term plan or a series of short-term plans to provide reasonably secure long-term coverage without the ACA's uh, hidden taxes in the form of uh, community rating price controls, its mandated benefits, uh, benefits mandates that increase the price of, uh, of insurance. But uh, supporters of the ACA oppose this idea for the same reason Paul was concerned about uh, expanding health savings accounts and the impact that would have on employer risk pools. In each case, you've got a government-created system of trying to subsidize the healthy, I'm sorry, sorry, uh, of trying to subsidize the sick, sicker people in employer pools or sicker people in the ACA risk pools. And, uh, and uh, what the short-term market is doing and what I propose and others have proposed to do with uh, health savings accounts is give people more choice. Because if you have more choice, healthier people are going to go for the better <coughs> deal where they have to pay less money to get the same coverage or better coverage uh, and uh, and uh, and if you want to keep these subsidy uh, schemes in place, the ACAs or the su- subsidies as exists in the employer-sponsored insurance system, you can't allow people choice. Uh, you 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 can't give people the choice of avoiding those subsidies, and so we end up with all these restrictions. And and why the uh, and why supporters of the ACA want to destroy that last bastion of choice in health insurance, because. Uh, you have to, you can't allow choice if if those subsidy schemes are going to survive, which uh, would tell you something uh, about how supporters of, say, a public option are likely to uh, view competition from private insurance if ever they do create a public option uh, in the exchanges or allow a Medicare buy-in or something like that. They're not going to look too kindly on competition because <clears throat> just look at how they uh, respond to competition uh, uh when the, uh, when the short-term market competes with Obamacare or when people propose to give uh, choice to people in employer-sponsored plans and let other alternatives compete with employer-sponsored plans.
3: So just a quick observation. The questioner uh, referred to health insurance companies and sometimes the shorthand is payers. Um, insurance broadly serves the functions of risk shifting, risk spreading, and risk distribution. Um, health insurance doesn't look like most of the other insurance markets, right? It's not focused exclusively on low probability but catastrophic outcomes, and it's partly through regulation, and partly because of an adaptive response to the subsidies. It covers lots of things that we don't see insurance doing in other markets. Um, And the typical statement is, your auto insurance doesn't cover you to do oil changes, whereas your health insurance covers your annual physical. Um, I think there's also more subtle complications going on, which is large employers um, aren't shifting risk. They're self-funded, so they retain the risk. They use insurers to Process the paperwork uh, and to construct networks, which is an important part of value creation to the extent they 're doing a good job uh, in health insurance um, and I you know I think the payers part of this is i think also a telling general claim, along with a statement about reimbursement that both of those are used in the context of The bills just are what they are, and our job collectively is to just write a check to pay for them. And I think what John's book is pushing back on uh, and the sort of consumer-directed healthcare, how well or poorly Congress structures it is a separate question, are trying to Uh, take advantage of markets and market incentives to the extent they're feasible in particular areas of the market. If you don't like what people are doing, don't lecture them about morals. Change their incentives. And I think that's the context out of which the book certainly comes.
5: Paul? I'm I'm really glad that David brought us back to what, what the meeting's about rather than to hash through the ACA.
0: All right. All right. Well, we'll make this to the last question.
2: Yeah. So when I was, um, when Paul, when you were talking about your hesitations uh, or your qualms about uh, health savings accounts being used by um, you know wealthier portion of the population, mostly for tax sheltering purposes, the first thing that came to mind was. Um, well, most innovations are usually used by the wealthy first. Look at cell phones, look at computers. They start at the higher income bracket and then they're proliferated, made cheaper, made better, all that kind of stuff. Um, I work in a healthcare provider setting. So I've, I've worked at this place for uh, eight months, seen probably 200 plus patients. Um, two of those 200 had a health savings account, which they utilize in a very consumer savvy way. The rest of them were by and large pretty frustrated with what their insurance was covering and how... It, their insurance was billed and they were mostly confused and exasperated about what they're getting from insurance and what they're paying in premiums and what they're having to pay in large out-of-pocket deductibles. Um, but culturally, they still think, there's still this association that employers are supposed to pay a lot of insurance or insurance is supposed to pay a lot. They're not very savvy when it comes to consume, like them negotiating. It was a very small part. Um, and this is more for the panel here. Um, they're not. It seems to me in my interactions with these people, is they very much want something like an HSA that gives them more, um, more bargaining power, more consumers having more just buy-in, and in the process, right now they're just kind of being dictated by forces beyond their control. Um, is to get to that point to where they're more aware of these options? Is that a policy thing? Is that a cultural thing? What What is the steps to kind of make HSAs more? I don't know. Just people more aware of them, that it is an option. Well, yeah. are, are those choices being constrained by the market in which they're buying their health insurance? What are y'all's thoughts?
5: Yeah, you know, I, I think I'd rather go about it in a different order. I'd really say I think there's some potential for consumers to be better shoppers. And there are things that can be done. Um, you know, there are ideas about transparency. Many of them aren't very effective. But in a sense, if that's the goal, uh, I mean, I think it's, it has to be – it's a goal with limited upside because so much of healthcare, at the point of service is really not very shoppable. Uh, but, if, you know, if you want to encourage more uh, shopping, you know, you go at it from there rather than, oh, HSAs aren't very extensive. How do I make them more popular? You're kind of saying, I have this solution, and the solution – isn't, hasn't been uh, adopted much, how do I get it to be adopted more? I think you start that, you know, there are other ways to foster shopping behavior. There is a whole thing of taking steps to foster more competitive markets. And I think one of the biggest problems we face in healthcare, and it's become more severe over time, and I think if it continues to become more severe, it's going to really wipe out the opportunity to use markets which is concentration, consolidation. Healthcare is becoming increasingly consolidated. Uh, and, uh, and I'm concerned that uh, people like me who advocate more competition in healthcare and things the government should do to foster more competition are gonna wake up someday and say, you know, it's too late. We have no choice but to regulate all these things Uh, because consolidation has ruined the opportunity for competition. I think that's my big concern.
4: Okay, first we need the tax system to completely be changed. So the government's giving us all the same tax relief, regardless of income. So you get a tax credit. um, And it's fixed. And that means that any additional premium you pay, any additional deposit to a health savings account is all done with after-tax dollars. There's no subsidy at the margin. Then we need that account to be really flexible, so that it wraps around any employer plan. Then we need employers to uh, to open up and be more imaginative. Uh, I don't know why employers are involved in primary care. <laughs> you know, so why not say to the employee, employee? You know, if, unless something serious, unless you're going into the hospital, unless you have cancer, uh, you just you here's two or three thousand dollars. You handle all primary care, all diagnostic tests, and we'll see how well the market works. So that's between you and and the minute clinic, and whatever the market can do. Um, and those are the three things I would do.
0: David? All right. Well, I want to thank our speakers and thank all of you for coming. <laughs> thank you, John.